The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Barbie Body Dream Sequence Edition. It's Wednesday, May 29th, 2019. On today's show, Booksmart is the first feature directed by the actress Olivia Wilde. It's a nerdy and queered up spin on the old teen comedy and critics love it. And then news has broken that uh, 20 years after its debut and after revolutionizing the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is going to be canceled. We uh, we talked to Slate's own Justin Peters about the show's impact and his turn as a contestant on the show. And finally, our very own Dana Stevens has a new podcast with FOP, friend of the program, Kay Austin Collins, who's the uh, film critic for Vanity Fair. The show's called Flashback. It's terrific, and I cannot wait to ask uh, both of them about it. Joining me today is Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello. Do you have a new respect for me now that I have another podcast? I Or just I, respect for the first time, maybe? I, you've caught me in, in a bind here. I mean, it's like this answer is just the gooeyest and most sincere one, which is that um, you're wonderful on the new show. And so I guess the answer is yes. Oh, sincerity. So sweet. Uh, yeah, Bob, just bullshitting you. I didn't even listen. Um, <laughs> Julia. That sounds like the Steve I know. <laughs> Julia Zerner is the uh, deputy managing editor of the LA Times in charge of arts and culture. Julia, hey, how you doing? Hello. I'm doing great. All right, let's dig in. Olivia Wilde is the beloved, not just a pretty face actress whose intelligence really shines through her every appearance on the screen. She's been wonderful in a lot of movies, and you expect that she ought to be just the biggest star in the world, and it just the right role or whatever hasn't come along. So yes, she's making her own fate, which is great. In this movie, as I have written here before me, now her intelligence has been put to use behind the camera, directing Booksmart, which is an old school American uh, teen comedy with a twist. It's a school filled with the usual cliques and tribes and rivalries and put down humor, all of that's quite familiar, within which two nerds try to redeem their four years of not partying at all by making their last night of high school one to remember. What follows is a classic John Hughes-style self-awareness parable, but with some really brilliant, really unexpected uh, and very queer twists. Let's listen to a clip. We have to go to a party tonight. What? Let's go to Nick's party. Are you kidding? No, no way. We only have one night left to have studied and partied in high school. Otherwise, we're just going to be the girls that missed out. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Okay, we've broken a lot of rules. One, we have fake IDs. Fake college IDs so we can get into their 24-hour library. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. That's, he broke art rules. Name a person who broke a real rule. Rosa Parks. Name another Susan one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. I didn't want that to stop. Dana, what do you make of this movie? Uh, it's it's a delightful kickoff to the summer. I really, really loved it. Um, I, I, I want to hear you guys on it because I feel like I've already done a spoiler special. I've already written on it. I feel like I've already done my, my loving up on this movie. I will say that after the absolutely rapturous critical response that it got after its uh, debut at South by Southwest, I maybe expected it to innovate the teen comedy a little bit more. It doesn't particularly try to do that, but in a way that can be one of its strengths. I really enjoyed this movie. I think I also suffered from high expectations because of the hype coming out of this film. And I think we can talk in a moment about the expectations put on this film by its wide release and its box office performance and the social media phenomenon this weekend of Olivia Wilde up in everybody's mentions, like personally begging them to go out and see the movie on opening weekend uh, and framing the the uh, any failure to do so as a failure of the future of women in film broadly. Um I, I don't think it was like radical or perfect. I didn't leave with the crazy exhilaration of having just seen a total unchecked marvel. It struck me as in keeping with Lady Bird, with Edge of Seventeen, in some ways with Diary of a Teenage Girl. I mean, we've seen a number of frank, female-driven, sexually aware teen comedies in the last few years. Hooray, thankfully so. It's not all... Uh, the dude and the girl is the last object and like trying to get the stain out of the white suede suit. Um, and directed by women, I would add a bunch of those that you just mentioned. A bunch of them directed by women, which is really exciting. And so, yay, it's an exciting entree into the category. Um, but I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I think if I had known nothing about it, I might have walked out like with my jaw on the floor 
and knowing some about it, I was like, all right, yeah, that was good. Great. I really admired it. I would recommend that people go see it. I think it is puckish and smart. And I do think it is boundary pushing in the ways that it thinks it is. Um, that said, I was a little bit of a fence sitter, but I had to think about why. I mean, the, the high school genre has kind of semi petered out, but also semi kind of undergone the metamorphosis that the Western underwent in the 60s and 70s, which is it's you know moved into its revisionist phase. Um, but it seems to me most of them, what drives the high school movie or the teen movie is you know, the, the weirdness of high school, which is that you hated it while you were there and then you're deeply nostalgic for it once you've grown up and moved beyond it. So this movie has a, it has the distinctive thing that the old, let's say John Hughes or like Risky Business, the high school movie of your had, which is you have this village sized, you know, community of people who are interacting with one another in tribally meaningful ways. Um, and expressing their, you know, attempting to express their human individuality vis-a-vis one another uh, in ways that are like extremely fragile and vulnerable. Um, And it's about getting beyond the fronting and the role-playing to the, you know, something meaningful in the inner core or something like that. I mean, I don't know exactly what, but, but, you know, that's sort of the basic framework in which the movie takes place. But one really important element of that, as you guys were sort of alluding to, is our cl- class distinctions, right? I mean, that's the whole idea of the American public high school, or or used to be, is that you know you sort of threw a really widely disparate group of people together in this one catchment, you know, and um, and they were forced to interact with one another, and it was amazing to me how 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 absent from this movie this was. I mean, you have a central conflict of the movie that kicks off in some ways the plot of the entire movie is the rival between two girls, both of whom have been accepted to Yale. And it just, I was like, what high school, what, is this a public high school? It seems like a public high school. It seems to present itself as a public high school. But then, you know, this sort of, you know, earth jolting revelation that the one of the two protagonists, you know, has that sets off this, you know, burning desire to go to the happening party at the last night of high school is her realization that these other kids have gotten into Stanford, Yale, Georgetown, and one is skipping college and going to work directly for Google for a six-figure salary. And and the realization is one could have been an ordinary, well-rounded human being with a social life and have been a super high achiever. And she thought she had to sacrifice being well-rounded to be a high achiever. I was like, what universe am I in? I, I couldn't, it was really, really hard to place what the saliency was of this bubble to our general experience in a way. And that's what the high school, high school movie microcosm used to, I think, at least try to do. And Dana, am I onto something? Yeah, Steve, this goes to what I was hastily trying to stammer out in my first comments on the movie, which is as delightful and fun as it is to be in this world, it's very hard to figure out which world it is exactly. The exact same public versus private question appeared in my mind and refused to go away. And whether it would be a public or even a top flight academic private school, it would still be sort of extraordinary for every single kid, whether they were a partier or a super student, to get into these top flight colleges. And it that was that tension was never resolved over the course of the movie. You just sort of had to accept that that world existed. And so not only is the you know, economic and educational privilege not in any way addressed, but it just doesn't, there aren't enough stakes in a world like that, you know? I mean, it doesn't really have any meaning to be the valedictorian in a school where, for some reason, whether you study every night or party every night, you get the same grades and get the same result. Anyway, that put the whole thing into this sort of frictionless, socially frictionless universe that it was hard for me to accept. And it wasn't that I was waving some progressive flag and saying this isn't politically correct or something. It just didn't quite seem believably real. Well, that's the thing that's that I think is really striking about the film, right? There's a piece of it which feels emotionally very we- real, which I think is the the regret, the late high school regret of the devout student who realizes that they've missed out on some other way to be and wants to experiment with that, which, 
you know, I I think that's like a common senior experience in in high school is you figure out that you've become part of a tribe and then you think through whether that's the part of the tribe you wished you'd been part of. Um, and the the specificity of that regret of their relationship, the the precision with which their love for one another and the protect protective bond that they have forged is rendered feels so spot on, so real, so fully written, like you're totally present in these two women's performances. And I loved that. And then everything else is kind of this hazy dream cloud that is much less specific. And if you think about it in comparison to Lady Bird, which was very precisely situated within a specific family with a specific family dynamic within a specific city in California and its specific relationship to the rest of California and the country and to a specific university. <clears throat> I mean, I'll tell you what kind of school uh, has basically the the contours that she described. Olivia Wilde went to Phillips Andover Academy, which is a prep school of the sort that Stephen and I are both familiar with. And yeah, if you're in a schmancy prep school like that, Sometimes a lot of the class will end up going to a fancy school and some of them might be jocks and some of them might be star students. And, you know, as we're learning from the college scandal, some of them's parents may have paid their way in. Um, but the vernac the visual vernacular of the school is like California public school. And there's also this kind of missing question around the Molly character's family. When the movie opens... She's listening mm -hmm. to a very specific meditative tape in the voice of an older woman saying, like, go out there and crush everybody, essentially. She's doing, like, hostile aggressiveness yoga or breathing or something. And I sort of took that to be her dead mom somehow, that, like, she had an absent or dead mother. This is a total conjecture on my part. But there's, like, a, the, the her family life is very gauzily sketched. The school is very imprecise about class and race and like the actual meanness of teenagers, which I doubt has abated since uh, we were all teenagers. And yeah, it's this funny variability in focus. It's like one of those tilt shift pictures where like their relationship is incredibly precise and focused. And then the rest of it is kind of fuzzy and like good naturedly so, but it makes the whole thing hard to love. As a avid consumer of high school movies right the, the of the genre and like an a, a like incorrigible overthinker like they, i think the thing that always hit me about the about the genre about this kind of movie is that you know for many people in american life high school is the last time that you were accorded the full right to express your own individual human personality right within a community that took note of you doing it and there's something truly bittersweet about the high school movie because it's about two things at once, right? It's about the self-sorting that people do socially by uh, aligning with a certain tribe, nerds, jocks, cool kids, rich kids, whatever, overlaid by the actual sorting that the high school does by essentially determining who's going to go move ahead in life by going to college not going to college by being a good student a bad student the kind of judgment the meritocratic judgment that's being rendered on these kids and all of that is a thwart the class legacy that each kid brings to the school and that may sound like a mouthful but i defy you to tell me that that's not a fair summary of what happens in the breakfast club i mean you know and some of the better you know examples of the genre and so it's like you have so many of these touchstones but all of what's conflicted and weird is placed on the gate really on the gayness of one of the characters yeah, there is a curious lack of parallelism in how much we learn about Amy's life, the Caitlin Deaver character. We meet her parents. They're played by Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte in a couple funny scenes. And we sort of see the type of home that she comes from. We learn nothing like that about Molly, Beanie Feldstein's character. And that doesn't seem to me like it was a deliberate touch or that, you know, I don't think secret messages about her mother are being smuggled into the tape, although I like that overreading of the opening moments. I think it is just almost an, an editing error. I think there was a much longer edit of this. Olivia Wilde has said that there was a three-hour assembly of it before it was cut down to its current size. And I bet it just lost a lot of background mm -hmm. for, for time purposes. Right. So, yeah, there is something imprecise about that portrait. 
there is still an enormous amount of energy and uh, and compassion in the portrait of the other kids at the school. I mean, by saying it's imprecise, I don't want to suggest that there are just a bunch of thin stereotypes walking around. I actually really like a lot of the, the minor characters in this movie. And that lack of villainousness that I talked about earlier may make for somewhat lower stakes, but it also makes for some compassionate portraits of students who could easily have been, you know, the snotty rich kid and the slutty girl. And those people get fleshed out and and drawn uh, more more humanly than they might in in a lesser high school movie. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really charming about the movie is that the Amy character, Caitlin Deaver's character, is gay. She's out. She's just as virginal as her hetero friend, Molly. And uh, they both pine after lust objects while not quite knowing what they would do with them if they acquired them. Uh, they go into a dream ballet, which I really loved. I mean, there are some really beautiful and goofy and interesting directorial touches here that make me excited to see what Olivia Wilde might do next. Um, it, it has the feeling of someone kind of playing around with the capabilities of the medium in a way that's enjoyable to be along for the ride on. Um, but the low keyness and just the matter of factness around uh, the, the Amy character's sexuality is one of the things I liked most about the film. It's not it's not about her struggle to be gay. It's about her struggle to figure out how to be a grown up sexual being who happens to be gay. And that uh, feels lovely. OK, well, we should emphasize uh, the movie is, is fun. It's very funny. It is very kind. It's compassionate. And it's wise. It's a very good movie. It's so good that it maybe made us hold it up to the standards of the touchstones of the genre and it might not you know quite work but it's it's terrific and people should seek it out okay can i say smart. one more thing before we close do you i was just going to send people to the slate spoiler special that i taped on it last week with uh, with christina Cadarucci and jeffrey bloomer where we get into a lot more of these questions we get way more into the question of amy's sexuality and, and her barbie body dream sequence that we titled this week's culture fest after but hadn't really talked about and uh and we just generally break down you know the look and feel and sound and music etc of the movie so if you want to hear more on book smart you can go to a slate spoiler special on it all right superb hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, before we go any further, Dana, I'm sure we've got some uh, business to go over. What do you What do you have? We do. We have a bit of business today, the first of which is a reminder that we are coming up on the very first Slate Day. On Saturday, June 8th, Slate will be in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line. That's where our show is. And in the SVA Theater in Chelsea with a day of live podcasts and all kinds of other fun things to do. Just for a few examples, there is going to be a drag brunch with Outward, our LGBTQ podcast, which I hope to go to because I'm excited for the words drag brunch and Outward to all come together in one moment. There'll also be a live Waves podcast, a live Dakota Ring, a live Studio 360, a live Trump cast, a live political gab fest. There's no way you could go to all these things. There's going to be some FOMO choices to be made. And uh, in the evening at 6 p.m., a live Slate Culture Gab Fest. You can come for the whole day if you get an all-access pass, or you can just get tickets for whichever events you want to attend. Oh, I forgot to mention that there is also a live mom and dad are fighting play date, which seems really fun. You can bring your kids to that. Whatever you choose to see, we can't wait to see you at Slate Day on June 8th. For tickets and information, you can go to slate.com slash live. And the second piece of business is that we are also coming up on the yearly summer strut edition of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. This is our annual episode where we solicit music from our listeners, music that you like to strut down the street to with your headphones on in the summertime. And it can come from any time in music history. It doesn't have to be the song of this summer, just the song of the summer in your brain. So if you want to contribute music to this playlist at some point this summer, I'm not sure when. It'll take us a few weeks to compile the playlist and listen to it a bunch of times because we usually have about an entire 24-hour day's worth of music to listen to by the time we get this thing together. But if you want to contribute, you can email us at summerstrut at slate.com. That's summerstrut with no punctuation at slate.com. Send us the name of the song and send us a Spotify link if one is available. And we'll compile it all onto a shareable playlist, share it with you, and then when the time comes, discuss them on our special Summer Strut episode. Again, that's summerstrut at slate.com. 
And finally, in Slate Plus today, we're going to talk about show endings. Uh, since everybody in the universe seemed to have talked about Game of Thrones last week, but we, Steve and I, never kept up with the show to talk about it, we're going to broaden the conversation to what makes a great final episode. And each of us will pick a final episode of a TV show that we thought nailed it. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for our membership program, Slate Plus, for just $35 for your first year. And in return for that $35, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and many other great Slate shows, including my new Slate Plus-only podcast, Flashback, which we'll be talking about in today's show. So if you want to support the Slate Culture Gab Fest and other shows, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, back to the show. All right. Well, Justin Peters is a Slate correspondent. He's the author also of The Idealist, Aaron Swartz, and the Rise of Free Culture on the Internet. He joins us now to talk about how he is one of the biggest losers in television history. Justin, I didn't really know this until I went back and read some of your pieces on uh, your appearance on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Why don't you explain uh, how you ended up there? You know, everyone's got one story that they tell over and over um, over the course of their life. The fact that I am one of the biggest losers in game show history just so happens to be mine. And I decided at some point that by telling and retelling this story was how I would conquer this incredibly embarrassing experience. <laughs> um, a few years ago, I ended up on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which at that point was in syndication. Uh, the host was Terry Crews. It aired at like 1 a.m. in New York. No one watched it. I didn't even know it was still on the air until my friend encouraged me to audition for the show. And preparing for the whole experience, I'm like, no one ever wins the million dollars on this show. I'm just going to go on TV and have some fun. And I did that, and I had fun. And before I knew it, I started winning a lot of money. About 45 minutes of time went by. I had banked $250,000, made it to the $500,000 question, one question away from the million dollars. I'd gotten farther than anyone had gotten in years on that show. There hadn't been a, a million-dollar winner uh, since 2009, I believe, and there hadn't even been a million-dollar question seen for a very long time. So um, I was... It's hard to describe your mental state when you win life-changing money just for answering a few trivia questions over the course of 45 minutes. But suffice to say that what it did to me is put me in a very cocky state because everything had gone well for me thus far. I presumed that everything would go well for me going forward. So when the big money question came out, 500000 bucks, and I had no idea what it was. It was about protocol in the British House of Commons. I didn't even really have a good guess. But I was like, you know what? The name of this game isn't who wants to walk away without answering the $500,000 question. It's who wants to be a millionaire. So I guessed and I guessed wrong and all of the air went out of my lungs and my body and there was a vacuum sucking this money back to from whence it came and I walk away having lost 90% of the fictitious $250,000 that I had won and for you know, any other day of my life, winning $25,000 for an hour and a half's worth of work would be counted as literally top five day of my entire life. But at that moment, I felt lower than I ever, ever felt. And when my episode aired a few months later, um, you know, <laughs> I started hearing from a bunch of other people who had lost big on game shows, on Millionaire, on Jeopardy, on the short-lived show Greed on a bunch of other shows. And it turns out that uh, these people all sort of know each other, not on like an intimate let's go on a picnic together basis, but it's sort of a support group for big-time game show losers. And I was inducted into that tacitly. And uh, that was four years ago at this point. And... I never thought I'd have a chance to really tell this story in Slate again, except for the fact that uh, a couple weeks ago, it was announced that Millionaire is canceled after um, 20 seasons on the air, which is definitely the end of an interesting era in television history. And it means that my record is secure. I'm the last contestant 
in millionaire history to have seen and incorrectly answered the $500,000 question. So I'm the last of my kind. And <laughs> all I can say is thank God that no one else has to go through what I went through because it sucks. Something that really touched me in the second piece that you wrote, with some years of reflection on what it was like to uh, to have been the biggest loser in in game show history or one of them, uh, is is just how emotionally vulnerable you were for some time afterward, and and your own personal drive, almost this this maniacal drive to make meaning, to create some kind of meaning for your life out of this what seemed to you just a humiliating failure of an experience. Um, can you talk about professionally how you changed and uh, and sort of profited from or, or developed yourself out of this experience? Well, I can, you know, define my life in before millionaire and after millionaire, like BC and AD, right? Um, BC Justin um, was a pretty tentative guy who had a lot of ambitions in a bunch of different fields, but was always waiting for somebody to come in and extend a hand and drag him into doing the things that he wanted to do. And the result of that was that I sat on my butt for many years not doing anything because no one is going to come and say, hey, go um, do all these fun things um, that you've been wanting to do with your life. You have my permission. There's not a person like that. The person who is going to tell you that is you, yourself. It was me. And once, I, I will never forget watching my episode air um, at um, a weird hour at Walter's Bar on 8th Avenue and 29th Street in Manhattan. And there's about three people in there, me and my friend and this guy who may have lived there, um, and when, um, he, he was so taken aback to, um, see that I was sitting here and I was also on television and it took him a little bit while to process how that was possible. But once he saw me lose that money, he looks at me and he stands up and he starts applauding. He's like, you've got a set on you, boy. And, um, after a while of processing that, I'm like, you know what? It does take courage to, um, go after something to answer a question like that, not knowing whether or not you would get it right, because answering it is the only way that you get to the million dollar question. And I learned that I had that capacity in me to attempt things at which it was not clear whether or not I would succeed. And once I realized that I could do that, and even if I failed, I'd still live, it wouldn't literally destroy me. I would still wake up every morning and uh, be the same person. And that freed me to go out and do a bunch of things. Like I founded a couple of comedy festivals that I've run uh, around the country. Uh, me and my comedy partner have toured uh, America like nine or ten times. Since then, we've done about 300 different shows in 28 different states since I lost um, on Millionaire, um, I opened a pop-up theater in New York. I've looked at my journalistic life differently insofar as I care much less now about trying to accumulate clips and climb a ladder because I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And now I'm more focused on writing the work that I want to be doing. Um, and I think my work is better for it. And I don't know whether I would have had this epiphany had I taken the money. On the other hand, I would have $250,000, which, you know, <laughs> that's a lot of money. And I think I said in the piece that there are literally still some uh, moments where it'll hit me out of nowhere. Not nowhere. Usually after I see my um, pitiful bank balance that I'll just start groaning and like holding my head and saying, what have I done? But then that passes and I look the rest of my life and I'm like, no, I'm good with what I've done. Uh, I've made the most of it as much as anyone can. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what it means that Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is ending. I mean, is Who, who, who Wants to Be a Millionaire itself uh, flaming out in the way that you did during your run on the show? Like it, it felt like such an enduring 
format, like once a game show really takes hold in the American consciousness, we're used to it being on forever, like a utility, like a tap, like uh, like one of the railroads in Monopoly, right? The, you know, we've got Wheel of Fortune, we've got Price <laughs> is Right, we've got Jeopardy, and uh, they shall ever be thus. And somehow, something about who wants to be a millionaire was both more gaudy and sticky and expensive seeming, and it burned brighter at one point, you know, was it on in primetime five days a week? I mean, it, it, it achieved crazy heights and now poof, it's going out. Like what, what, what do you make of that arc for the show itself? Well, I think Millionaire was the only show among the ones you mentioned that debuted in primetime. Um, and that marked a real turning point in the uh, life of the American game show. Because um, I think not since the '50s and the, you know, quiz show scandals were uh, trivia programs given such prominence in uh, network lineups. And you're you're absolutely right, Julia. And in 1999 and 2000, that first season, Millionaire was airing five days a week in primetime and pulling 30 million viewers. It was more popular than Monday Night Football. In its first season, it was the most popular program in all of television. A game show where functionally very similar to all the other shows that had been relegated to syndication for the previous 20, 30 years. And its success sort of allowed the networks to rethink how they programmed primetime. Before Millionaire came around and was such a huge success, game shows and proto-reality shows were not thought of as embarrassing, but thought of as filler, something to stick on as reruns or summer programming or at weird times of the day, whereas the primetime lineup was devoted to scripted programming. But here comes Millionaire, and it just destroys everything else in its path. And then within a year, you've got the reality TV boom. You've got that show, Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire, which you know, most people have forgotten, but that was a harbinger of all of the reality television on network that came thereafter. After that show, there was Big Brother, there was Survivor, there was The Amazing Race. Most of these shows with these big million-dollar payouts, and the payouts were touted a lot harder back then than they are these days. Um, but without Millionaire, I feel like that doesn't happen as quickly, and it might not happen at all. And I think its early success also ended up being the reason why it failed, because once you get sick of a show, as America got sick of who wants to be a millionaire, there's only so many times you can, you know, watch a show five nights a week before saying, you know, I've, I've got it. I know what millionaire is. Um, and when they pushed it over to syndication in 2002, um, the audiences didn't really come with it. And it limped along for a bunch of time because of its name recognition value. Um, but ultimately, you know, it burned too bright too quickly. That combined with the fact that they stopped making millionaires. 2003 was the last year in which someone became a millionaire on the standard version of the show. In 2009, there was a special tournament version where someone became a millionaire. But not since 03 had someone actually climbed the ladder like John Carpenter did and all of those people did in 1999 and 2000. And you have to live up to your premise for people to want to keep watching. I mean, if it's who wants to be a millionaire, but literally no one becomes a millionaire for 17 years on the standard version of the show, then people are going to stop watching. And I think that is partially what happened. But you cannot undersell millionaire's importance um, in modern television history. It's a landmark show, and it changed the landscape for everything else. All right. Well, um, Justin Peters, thanks so much for coming back on the show and talking about uh, your turn on the game show. Uh, it's always a pleasure to come on. Thank you so much for having me back. All right. For this next segment, we're joined by uh, Kay Austin Collins, who, of course, is the film critic for Vanity Fair. Welcome, Cam, back to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. 
Uh, permit me to begin by quoting Dana Stevens, who writes, For a movie critic in this age of assault of newness, the past becomes a luxury, a place to be visited furtively in between barrages of fresh content. And in the um, same vein, Cam, in the in the first episode of your new uh, podcast with Dana Flashback, you say... Um, the majority of films you watch now are not new films for the sake of your sanity. It sounds as though this is like kind of a mental health leave for both of you um, in some <laughs> sense. You know, your your critics tasked with seeing the latest blockbusters, the latest indies, the latest big splash indies, and just new, new, new on a weekly basis. And uh, I can imagine, Dana, I'll start with you, that, that, that you begin to forget that there is this really deep, rich history of cinema um, that was presumably what interested you in the form in the first place. So talk about how this uh, podcast is a corrective, not just for you, but for people who are going to find it and listen to it. Yeah, I hope so. Now I'm afraid people are going to think we're, we're only listening to this to save the sanity of <laughs> Cam Collins and Dana Stevens. <laughs> it's a purely therapeutic <laughs> listen for us. Um, we should mention also, especially now that the first two episodes have been released, that after those first two free episodes, this will be a Slate Plus only podcast. So part of what you'll be doing if you listen to Flashback is supporting Slate and all the work we do. As I say, somewhere in the first episode of Flashback, I believe part of the genesis of this podcast came about uh, during Movie Club, this past Movie Club uh, in the beginning of this year, which Cam was one of the critics participating in, when uh, when we found ourselves talking about this, you know, this this kind of furtive desire to visit the past. And Cam, you you either spoke with me or, or wrote a Movie Club about visiting this this big uh, Criterion box set of Marlena Dietrich and Josef von Sternberg movies over the holiday break. And, uh, and I found myself envying you and thinking, oh, if only I had the time to kick back and look at those movies and not just envying the pleasure of seeing them, but, you know, being able to think about film, the history of film in a more comprehensive and, and larger way. And then it started to seem like, well, wh- we're movie critics. Our job is supposed to be to write and think about movies and help other people think about movies and discover new movies to see. And why are we treating this as some sort of furtive, you know, Playboy magazine to be leafed through in dad's attic or something like that? Why don't we bring it out into the open and actually discuss some of these older movies? And I think there's going to be an audience for that because it seemed like when we announced on Twitter that this was happening, that a lot of, um, of film fans were very enthusiastic about it. You know, I- as you guys have pointed out, I, I've been pretty vocal about the fact that I just watch a lot of older films. Even, even I mean, it's just I feel like it's just part of the job, right? I mean, just taking it all in and 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 comparing things and realizing things about other films that you've already been more more familiar with, etc. Um, so I mean, and it's just good to you know have someone to discuss that stuff with because even though it's not homework, it it, it is. Solitary, I think. Even, even if you have a lot of friends who watch older films, there's just no particular reason, unless you're going to the same retrospectives at MoMA or whatever, there's just no reason to talk about them all the time. And so it's good to kind of have a, a peg, I think, where I have like a set conversation with someone about a movie that we're both interested in and curious about and and to not master the movie, but to really just discuss it and discover things. Well, the other thing I would say is that if you live on the modern internet, you're used to having a cultural experience and then being able to find a big community of people who've also had that experience to like debate with or see what they think or compare notes on your reaction to some other set of people's reactions. Like it's a very digital way to respond to culture. And when you watch movies from 30 or 40 or 50 or 70 years ago, A, they're more mysterious as objects, right? The the tones and rhythms of filmmaking then were different. And even if you are as as knowledgeable as you two are about the history of film, you still just get a more uh, ambiguous and surprising object sometimes, whether through the scream of history or the fact that filmmaking was more experimental at various periods during that time. Um, So you come away with like more questions and more mysteries and more discussable points and then you don't have anywhere to put that if you're just kind of dipping into the catalog on your own of a of a weekday evening um so i love that the idea that the the podcast serves as a kind of movie book club for people or like a focal point for okay if you're gonna watch some retro title this month make it one of these and then you can dial up a discussion about it. Yeah, something else that um, that what Cam just said about casually discussing movies made me think of is that talking about a movie that came out, you know, in some of the cases of movies we're talking about, I don't know, 70 years ago or something like that, frees you to not 
have to review it. You know, nobody is waiting for your thumbs up and thumbs down on Gaslight, George Cukor's Gaslight, which was the first the subject of the first flashback podcast. It's it's something that you can respond to in maybe a humbler way, you know, where there's there's a whole film history that surrounds it and you can learn more and share what you've learned rather than feeling that you have to be an arbiter delivering a judgment. Mm-hmm. Right. And it sets aside this, I mean, to my mind, somewhat asinine debate about the role of criticism and the pushback critics are now getting and have been getting for a while now from um, actors, actresses, writers, directors. Um, exactly. When you're beyond that evaluative function, you get to treat something with simple respect. Uh, Cam, you know, listening to that first episode on Gaslight, um, just the care with which the two of you talk about something that was itself made with such care. Um, So there's a real harmony between the attitude that you're taking to the thing and the respect and self-consciousness with which it was originally produced and made. Right. We get the, well, we get the, thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying that. We, we get the, the treat of treating something as film history. I mean, we're not film historians, but I hope to bring a little bit of a film historian's lens to this. And for example, when possible, talk about contemporary criticism. How was the movie received in its time? How has its reputation changed in the years since? Which is particularly relevant in regard to our second episode. Uh, the movie was chosen by Cam. We're going to trade off who, who, who picks the movie each time. And the first one he picked was Wanda, Barbara Loden's Wanda, which was a movie that was only seen at festivals in its day when it was released in 1970, and which has now become kind of a cornerstone of, I don't know what you would call it, of sort of um, 70s independent cinema and uh, and is a really remarkable artifact that's only now kind of emerging into consciousness. It came out, the Criterion edition of it just came out earlier this year. The other thing I love about it is that we're in such an ascendant moment for television. And when I took over uh, the job I have now at the Los Angeles Times, I met with all the different teams and I met with the film team and I met with the TV team and all the rest. And I said to the film team, like, how do you guys feel about not being the dominant medium anymore? Like your, your, your bacon has been eaten you're holding down the fort for film. Like, what's your attitude on that? And one of our reporters, Mark Mark Olson, was like, well, I don't really understand why that is. Like, when when people are signing on for TV, they're signing on for this arduous multi-year arc with no promise of a return. Like, I feel like we have a very efficient promise to make to people in the modern media economy, which is, uh, you know, like 90 minutes, man. Give us two hours of your life. You can already have like a full set of verdicts on whether it's going to be two hours of your life that's ultimately worth your time in terms of giving you something to think about, enjoy, and chew over. And then you're done. You're back, you're back to the to the sea, swimming to find your next cultural fish. Like uh, there's such an efficiency promise to make about both current film and the history of film. And I thought that was such a uh, great case for for movies. I'm sure you guys are both like tearing your ears out because it's not the typical case for movies. Is <laughs> that they're um, I mean, like, on the contrary, I feel bonbons. like. Aren't I saying that all the time on this very show? I feel like almost every time we talk about a TV show, I'm whining about why it's so long and demanding so many return uh, commitments from the viewer. And yeah, I mean, I think that this is why I ended up being a movie critic and not a TV critic in the long term, although there was a period I was writing on TV and it's there's lots of exciting writing to be done on TV right now. But I love that one and done aspect of a good feature film. Me too. I absolutely, I mean, even shows that I love, I, I have a really hard time um, keeping up because there are just so many other things distracting me. And you know, I mean, th- and then, you know, there was Filmstruck for a while. Now there's a Criterion channel. As soon as one of these subscriber services starts, my watch list becomes like 400 things. I like, feel this pressure to kind of get around to watching. And also, I think part of, part of the point of the podcast for me has been to make myself finally go watch more of the things that I know that I I really deeply want to see, but just feel like I don't have enough time to see. I, I think I like that we're only every other week for that reason, actually. But someone keeping up shouldn't feel too much pressure to add a bunch of new movies to their slate. It's two, two movies a month, and you don't have to watch them with us. Right. I was going to add also that at the end of each podcast, we announce what the upcoming movie is. So you have two weeks to do your homework if you so choose, because we're not worrying about spoilers for movies that were released this long ago. We're going full on. Should we talk? And I will also say I really loved listening to both of your first two episodes without having seen either film and, you know, having known 
what Gaslight is and understood the general conceit of it through the cultural filter for my whole life and having, I think, never heard of Wanda and had no clue that it existed or was a cultural object that I should even have any thoughts or feelings about. And both of them were really fascinating listening, which doesn't mean I will never see a film that uh, you guys recommend, but um, it, it, it's a really fun listen, even if you aren't doing the filmic homework. All right. Well, the uh, podcast is Flashback with uh, Kay Austin Collins and Dana Stevens. Uh, Cam, thanks so much for coming back on the show. That was fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steven, uh, this week I want to talk about an audiobook that I'm really, really getting a lot out of listening to. I think Julia has mentioned before, maybe when she endorsed uh, H is for Hawk, that listening to an author read their own book on audiobook, especially when it's you know, an autobiographical story, has a has a particular power. There's some books that just are a completely different thing when you hear the voice of their own author telling the stories. And that's the case with this one that I'm listening to right now, which is called The Man They Wanted Me to Be by Jared Yates Sexton, who is a, a professor. He is at Georgia Southern University. He teaches creative writing. I think of him mainly as a political commentator and columnist because I discovered him during the 2016 campaign when he followed he reported on both campaigns, I believe. He followed both the Hillary and the Trump campaign and reported on them for the Atticus Review. But this book is something completely different. The Man They Wanted Me to Be is a memoir of his own experience with toxic masculinity growing up and, and sort of how he grew out of a very violent and dangerous home life uh, to become the person that he is today. So he grew up working class in Linton, really on the poverty side of working class, and had a loving mother, but a series, a rotating series of violent and addictive stepfathers who, you know, mistreated him and expected him to live up to all kinds of masculine ideals that were pretty violent and frightening and uh, went through a period of addiction himself and sort of struggled his way out on the other side of that to become a writer and teacher. And just hearing from somebody who grew up in Trump country about what it's like to be a young man growing up in Trump country and to relate his own personal experiences to what he sees unfolding, you know, in in the White House right now is just it's a very personal moving story. He tells it spectacularly well. And you really feel like you're just sitting in a bar with Jared Yates Sexton, listening to him talk about and reflect on his life and how that impacts his thinking about the current political and social and kind of gender related scene and uh and it's a great listen so the man they wanted me to be by jared yates sexton it's on audible and i'm sure other places that you can get audiobooks oh wow that sounds that sounds amazing um julia what do you have so <laughs> i'm gonna do the thing that dana told me i would do when we were talking about having cam on to discuss flashback this week i was like oh perfect because my husband and I have plans to go see Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen this weekend. And Dana was like, oh, my God, Julia's going to do that thing where she endorses Cheers, where she's like, you guys, Lawrence of Arabia is a good movie. <laughs> you guys, Lawrence of Arabia is a good movie. It's so good. Um, I think what I'm endorsing here is not merely Lawrence of Arabia, but of keeping your eyes peeled to your local revival houses if you should be so lucky as to have such um and to keep your eyes out for an opportunity to see this film on the big screen. Uh, we were at a sold-out showing at The Arrow, which is actually the theater in Santa Monica, where we did a live show. Dana and I held down the fort with Karina Longworth, I think because Steve was homesick in New York. Um, and it was really fun to see this landmark bit of cinema with 400 eager and excited fans who were also all there for the four hour long haul. Um, and again, this reveals more about my ignorance than about the strength of the film. But I went in having done no research and read nothing. I thought about reading a bunch of reviews and and um, stuff ahead of time with the idea that maybe I would have more to think about during the four hours of like mounting sand dunes or whatever I imagined the movie to be. Um, and it was so surprising in so many ways. I mean, I really had just filed it as like mid-century masterpiece, dude in desert, white guy in robes, Omar Sharif also. Like that was about as much as I had thought <laughs> about. Oh, very, very long. That was like my mental file folder on Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and I did not realize that it was so funny, that it was such a gnarly, ambiguous, interesting critique of... British Empire, uh, how many interesting ideas about masculinity and sexuality are in it. Uh, and and the thing that I loved most about it was just how 
insanely beautiful the desert compositions are. They're they're abstract. This is why I think it's worth seeing it on a big screen. They're just these like gorgeous composed abstractions uh, of desert life that are mind-blowingly beautiful. So as predicted, <laughs> my endorsement is Lawrence of Arabia, comma, good film. True story. I've never seen Lawrence of Arabia <gasps> on uh, any screen, big or small. But I, during this endorsement, I went on the internet. It's getting some kind of a semi-wide release in September 2019 on the big screens. Uh, up and it'll be up in Albany. It's going to be in Brooklyn. So I'm definitely going to see it then. And maybe we'd even do some kind of oh a, a yeah, plus let's, segment maybe or, we'll do a segment. Let's that would be discuss fantastic. it. I, I there's so much to discuss in it. And and one thing that's interesting about it is the way that it's like simultaneously a critique of Orientalism and deploys Orientalist tropes and, you know, which is like true of lots of culture from that hundred years or so. But it's, I don't know, it's a smart and mysterious object. It's, it would be so fun to discuss it with you guys. Oh, absolutely. Um, all right. So my endorsement this week is a couple of things quickly is that there's, um, if you're coming up to my neck of the woods via the Taconic Parkway, very often to get into Columbia County, you exit onto this thing, Route 81. And right at that corner, there's this sort of iconic diner or would-be iconic diner called the West Taconic Diner. And uh, it kind of fell on hard times and became a kind of shabby place to get a greasy meal. And um, hipster chefs... Uh, uh, have taken it over and just reopened it. And it's kind of on the little bit on the model of the Phoenicia diner uh, on the other side of the river, which has become justly famous and is a really remarkable diner. And it's, it's, a, it's a refurb job in that same, in that same mode. And um, we went there and ate there and they've got their own smoker out back. They're smoking their own meats. It's unbelievably well done, incredibly good. Uh, and they're only just getting started. They're only open a few days a week, like predict predictably on the weekends. I think it's kind of a Thursday through Sunday deal right now. They're going to expand those hours and they're going to do a dinner right now. They don't do a dinner, but um, they appear to really, really, really know what they're doing. It, 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 it was, it, 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 it's such a cool old aluminum structure um, and to bring it back and make it relevant now for us up here is terrific. Uh, we'll link to it on the show page. And then um, a, a writer, there, there was a kind of handful of essays to anything they write uh, I'm psyched to seek it out. That one of them is Stefan Collini, who's just an amazing. Uh, he's a Brit. Um, I think he used to teach, or maybe teaches at UCL in London. Uh, but everything he writes is just shot through with penetrating, penetrating intelligence. He is just what criticism should be and seem and sound like. Um, he has an essay, a review essay in the London Review of Books, on a biography of the British critic Ian Watt, who. Uh, was a sort of legendary early theorist of the novel and the rise of the novel. His book, The Rise of the Novel, is like one of the great works of post-war literary criticism. Um, and what's wonderful about this review is that, I know this sounds like inside baseball, but it just really isn't. I mean, Watt, Watt was just, a, like, you know, there's it, the way people now think about Watt is through the lens of literary theory, which makes him seem pre-theoretical and naive and like this person that one wouldn't have to pay attention to any longer. And Collini is very smart about saying why that that turns out not to be true, that in fact Watt was incredibly close with Theodore Adorno, who helped him shape the ideas behind the rise of the novel. But then another friend of Watt's said, get rid of all of the scaffolding and just say it in this plain style of speech. And in fact, that is the genius of that book. And that is the genius of all great criticism. Um, it, it's in fact not naive at all, but it doesn't wear its its scaffolding in some clunky, you know, hyper self-conscious way. And there's just a beautiful paragraph in the in the in the review where he talks a little bit about this miniature generation of critics who fought in the war, who fought in World War II and came back kind of um you know, impossibly precocious young adults because they lived a lifetime of, of human experience in a period of, you know, 40 months or whatever that they that they spent fighting. And Watt was one of them. 
Um, uh, Colini quotes Watt. He says, "For as he uh, for as he wrote in a later essay about his time as a prisoner, I guess he was taking pr- he was taken prisoner in World War II by the Germans. All our circumstances were hostile to individual fantasies. Surviving meant accepting the intractable realities which surrounded us and making sure that our fellow prisoners accepted them too. So Watt had this intensely skeptical attitude, for example, towards Hollywood and the culture industry, just as Adorno did, but kind of." earned through experience and not simply a theoretical carapace. Um, And then Collini goes on, the need to accept the, quote, intractable realities which surround us became something of a leitmotif of Watt's scholarship, an emphasis evident in his admiration for the only writer to whom he devoted a full-length book, Joseph Conrad. Anyway, I... This engages with all of my pet concerns and maybe it engages with nobody else's, but I think it's just a beautifully written review essay. And as an undergraduate, I remember the rise of the novel being this, to my totally false awareness, a kind of fusty work of criticism that older professors forced on on one. But this made me really want to go back and, and reread it. Um, anyway, check it out. We'll link to it on the show page. And then very briefly, a plug, if you'll if you'll permit me, uh, I have occasionally been doing plus segments with uh, Barry Lamb on his incredibly good podcast, Hi-Fi Nation. And we uh, recently did one in which we discussed the relationship between uh, the moral justness of a cause and what tactics that should um, uh, enable you to use or not use. And it was so, so fun talking about philosophy with him as a, as a philosophy groupie because he's the real deal. Um, all right. Wait, wait, wait. Actually, before we before we do thank yous and credits, I just, there's two, we got, a, we always get so much smart mail from our listeners, which we love. We love hearing what you're thinking about the show, culturefestatslate.com. But also, we got two notes that I thought were worthy of mention. One is that someone emailed to critique mostly my use of the word kvel to mean to express praise, uh, correctly pointing out that actually kvel suggests a sense of pride of ownership in that praise. And um I would just like to say to this listener, you are correct. And in fact, I know that about the word Cavell and I misuse it anyway. I can't help it. I don't know why. I will try to stop. But I literally last week, one morning was thinking about using that word like on the ride to work and was thinking about how I use it wrong. And in fact, it suggests a sort of pride of ownership. Like you could Cavell about the achievements of your, uh, you know, grandchildren, but not not just random strangers who made an object of culture that you like and respond to like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Um, so uh, I apologize for having quelled where quelling was not warranted. Uh, and then we also got an interesting note about Steve's Coe Leonard um, uh, endorsement of that bouncing shot, which I then went and showed to my children who enjoyed it. Um, and now that the Raptors have achieved a berth in the NBA finals, perhaps we should read a couple excerpts from that note. We got a note from a listener. I'm not mentioning the names of either of these listeners because we didn't have a chance to ask permission before deciding to do this. But uh, a smart and longtime listener wrote uh, about Steve's Kawhi Leonard shot endorsement, an email titled Kawhi's Shot. Uh, And a a few moments in, it begins. I was a bit surprised, however, to hear him describe the episode as a, quote, sublime moment in American sports history. While identity is often a consequence of difference, Canadians are particularly notorious for defining themselves and their culture in opposition to the United States. At the risk of contributing to the sense of national inferiority, I would like to offer the perspective that the moment Stephen endorsed is at least as important in the canon of Canadian sports as in the American one. Since Toronto got a basketball team in 1995, the city has struggled to recruit star players. Despite having a devoted fan base and being a large and culturally diverse city, players have balked at the thought of playing north of the border. The Raps' first star, Damon Stoudemire, was eager to leave Toronto in search of a bigger stage. Hedo Turkoglu made his displeasure at being in Toronto widely known. Alonzo Mourning refused to play for the team. I've heard rumors about players not wanting to be paid in Canadian dollars, and Antonio Davis reportedly sought a trade because he did not want his children learning the metric system or the Canadian national anthem. Over the past several years, Toronto has become more of a destination team. One might attribute this to Drake's efforts to hype his hometown and hometown team or the seeming pleasure all-stars like Kyle Lowry or DeMar DeRozan take at playing in the six. But Kawhi's arrival in Toronto and his game-winning shot are milestones for a team that has embraced its Canadianness from the start but has struggled to find support south of the 49th. From the spontaneous singing of O Canada by fans in Jurassic Park after the Game 4 win versus the Bucks to the team slogan, We the North, this is Canada's team, and that shot was, at least in part, Canada's moment. Enjoyed that bit of Canadian nationalism. Thank you for the Canadian nationalism, dear listener. 
Yeah, I agree. That was good. That was a good letter. Thank you. And please keep the letters coming, especially when we <laughs> we diss your entire country unintentionally. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree with every word of that. And also, the, I do think the mail that we've gotten, especially like something about the last couple of years, is just so enlightening and affectionate and fun. Um, so yes, please send us emails. Uh, all right. Well, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. And also we have a Twitter feed at Slate Cult Fest. And please interact with us there. We love it. Um, Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you soon. sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. And you can watch those two minutes over and over and over again with that Journey song playing in the background and each person doing something deeply characteristic of the, of, the, of the character that they'd been playing for eight years or whatever it had been. And then ending, of course, with the screen going to black, leaving it to the audience to decide whether he'd been whacked, which of course he clearly was. 